want you to have the Word of God in your hands as we look at it this morning. We're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 in a little bit. But I want to ask you a question first. question is, I want you to think back to the last time that you went to the doctor. Okay? Think back, think back a little bit to the last time that you went and had an official doctor's visit. For some of you, that may have been very recently. For others, it might have been quite some time. I want you to think, is there, are there people here where your last doctor's visit was more than one year ago? Can you think a little bit? Raise your hand if that's the case for you. Wow. Okay, so that means there's a few people in here. It means one of two things. Either A, you are very healthy, or B, you're very stubborn, right? You're just like, I'm sick, but I ain't going. I'm just, I'm just not going, right? And, and so, this morning, we're going to, in the Gospel of Mark, continue on in our journey. We've taken a couple weeks off over Palm Sunday and Easter, but now we're back into chapter 2. Today, just looking at verses 13 through 17. And through this series, our goal is to learn more about the Jesus we follow, that we would know His true identity in our minds, and that in our hearts, we would trust in His complete authority, and that as we live, we would follow Him immediately. That's our goals as we go through this series. And today, we're going to learn more about the Jesus we follow and how we as disciples ought to follow Him. In the passage today, Jesus will reveal Himself as the doctor who has come to ask six sinners to follow Him. And then we'll see Jesus choose one particular sick sinner to be His disciple. And then we'll see how this sick sinner now relates to the rest of His sinful friends now that He follows Jesus. And then we're going to stop at the end and look at ourselves for a little bit. And we're going to see that we probably tend to be like the Pharisees in this passage. As we look around, think that we're doing pretty well, and then in doing so, put ourselves in danger of never ourselves going to the doctor. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, I want you to take your Bible, like I said, open up to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. In my words, I I seek to study and pray and and want to share my words as close as I can to be truth. But I know I am not infallible, but God's Word is. It is inerrant. It is without error. And so as we read God's Word this morning, let's stand together. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can be seated. Well, 
We're going to just go through this as we usually do, verse by verse. Starting in verse 13, I want you to notice in verse 13, if you've been here for the rest of our series on Mark, you're going to remember some things that sound very, very common already in verse 13. Look at verse 13, it says this, He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea. You might remember that when he called the first four disciples in Mark chapter 1, where was he? He was beside the sea because they were fishermen at work in the sea. So Jesus again is beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. We've talked about that a lot. The crowds continue to come and gather around Jesus. And when crowds come and gather around Jesus, what does he do? Remember? Typically, he teaches. And that's what he's doing again in verse 13. Mark 2, 13. He went out again beside the sea. All the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. So again, crowd gathers. Again, Jesus by the sea. And again, Jesus teaching the crowd that's gathered Before him. And then verse 14. Verse 14 says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Okay? Let's stop right there for a second. Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Um, Levi, you might know him by his other name that kind of got changed, I guess, over time. Uh, His new name became Matthew. He's one of the twelve disciples, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. The name Matthew means gift of God, and after he met Jesus and followed him, Jesus changed his name. We don't have an account of that, but somehow his name got changed to Matthew. Um, And so that's who we're talking about here, Matthew or Levi. And it says he's the son of Alphaeus, and here he's sitting at a tax booth. Okay, he's sitting at a tax booth. More than likely, his boss was a guy named Herod Antipas. And the way that he got his job as tax collector to sit at this tax booth was different than how you would get a job with the IRS today. Not very similar. What they would do is they would actually, there would be bids uh, under the Roman government People who wanted a job as a tax collector would give the government bids of like, this is how much I will get you. And then those tax collectors, the way that they make their living is they then ask the people whom they're supposed to collect taxes from, they ask for them more than what they actually need to give to the Roman government. So they kind of skim off the top as much as they feel like they need or deserve for themselves and their family. So to be a tax collector... Um, not a very esteemed job. It's not, I mean, maybe you would have, friend, have trouble making friends with an IRS agent, but this is, this is totally different. This is a whole new ballgame because this guy, Levi, and all the other tax collectors were working for the enemy. The, the, the people didn't have their own land, and so they were living under the occupation of the Roman Empire, and so their taxes went to this government that they didn't have any representation in, really, or anything like that. And so they were paying these taxes, which were exorbitant, uh, to a people that they didn't really even get to um, be a part of. So it didn't make a lot of sense, and they didn't like to, just like we don't, probably, but, but probably even more so. They didn't like to pay taxes, and they certainly didn't, certainly didn't like the people that were collecting them, because they were quite dishonest in the way that they did it. They knew they were scraping more 
off the top and taking more from them than what they actually needed. But they couldn't do anything about it. And so, these, a lot of these tax collectors in this region were actually Jewish by ethnicity, but not by religious practice anymore. They couldn't continue to practice and, and adhere to the Jewish law, the Torah. They couldn't do that in this t- line of work. It would be impossible for them to, to have this kind of working for Gentiles, collecting money for Gentiles, and doing it dishonestly and with a lot of greed. You can't both follow the Torah religiously and do this. And so the other Jews would look down on those that were tax collectors. So we just read here, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And it just sounds like words to us. But if we're putting ourselves in the boots of the people that live in that day, or the sandals probably, of the people that live in that day, we recognize what a crazy thing this is that Jesus is doing. First he called, remember, four fishermen? And we learned in Acts that they say, we're uneducated common men. And we wonder, why would Jesus choose fishermen? Of all the people, why guys who fish for a living? They're uneducated common men. Jesus wants the whole world to know who He is and what He came to do. Why did He choose those four? But the eyebrows get raised even more when Jesus chooses this guy who's sitting at a tax booth. Why would He choose somebody sitting at a tax booth? And so, we don't have an answer here. Um, And we could go to other spots in Scripture for an answer, but I think the answer is going to be very similar to the answers that we had before. But I think what we need to take from this today, I didn't finish the verse. We've got to finish the verse first. Hold on. The rest of the verse says this. He passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Gets up from his lucrative job as a tax collector, stands up from his tax booth, leaves it, and follows Jesus. We saw fishermen do that with the business and the industry that they had, forgetting about the future, any plans for security that they had out the window as they leave it all to follow Jesus. And now, the same thing happens with a tax collector. Jesus says, follow me, and they follow him. I think what we need to take from this verse for us today is that we need to ask ourselves this question. Is there anyone outside of the reach of our Savior? Anyone outside of the reach of our Savior? Anyone too dirty? Anyone that's made too many compromises? Anybody who's just lived their whole life in opposition to everything that our God's about? Is it possible for God to save even them? Do you have any friends? Any classmates? Any co-workers? Any family members who just seem too lost, and you've almost given up hope? Be encouraged by verses 13 and 14 that as Jesus comes along, He will call to follow Him people who we think are a little bit too lost. Got a big question though. As you come into verses 15 and 16. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I dealt with this question a lot as we got to see more and more teenagers come to faith in Christ and then figure out what was hard for them, and it's hard for us as adults too, to figure out how do I now relate to my friends who are not Christians? Okay, The crowd that Levi hung out with, 
Probably not the crowd that's sitting here in our church this morning. He hung out with a pretty rough crowd. Tax collectors didn't hang out with the church kids. Tax collectors hung out with other tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. Okay? And so, how do we, once we become Christians, how do we now relate to our friends who are not yet Christians? The friends that we had before we came to Christ. That's a good question for us to ask. And I think we have maybe two options, maybe a third. But one option is, I heard this, this testimony of a guy one time when I was at a youth camp. And, uh, and this guy was um, now the worship leader at the camp that I was at. But prior to being the worship leader at the camp, before he became a Christian, he was in, and he wouldn't tell us which one. I don't know if it was a big time kind of thing. It sounded kind of like it was. But he was in just a secular rock band. And so he spent his life on tour. And what he did while he was on tour with his rock band was what a lot of rock stars do when they're on tour with their rock band. That in every city that he went to, he had certain people that he would connect with, either for a number of different things that you can imagine, uh, including a lot of drug use. And so he had connections in every city that they would go on tour to. He had connections that he could get what he wanted to make himself feel good. And that's what he did. That's how he spent his life. And then through a series of events, he comes to realize that he is sinful. And he repents of his sin, puts his trust in Jesus, and becomes a Christian. And he goes into his pastor. And he says, Pastor, what, like, I, I'm so scared that I'm going to just jump back into this. Because we're going to go on tour again, and I, I'm on contract. I've got to finish out the year. We're on tour again. I'm going to go back to the same cities with the same people. And the pastor said to him, well, how do you get in contact with those people when you arrive in the city? And uh, this was before a lot of people had cell phones, but he was a rock star, so he had a cell phone. And he said, well, all their numbers are saved here in my cell phone. The pastor says, do you have their numbers saved anywhere else? He said, no. He goes, take your phone and break it over your leg. And he looked at him. I don't know if I can do that. The pastor said, well, do you trust yourself? And he said, no, I don't. Break your phone. He took his phone, broke it over his leg. And he didn't have any longer. And so his, because of where he was at and how deep he was into his sin, his option, the only option that he saw as a good viable option was, I need to totally cut myself off from all of my non-Christian friends. When the season's done, I'm done with the band. I'm just walking away from everything. That's one option. Another option and this is an option that I think a lot of people unfortunately take, is that people who come and hear the Word of God and and put their faith in Christ but have a lot of friends who are still not Christians, they continue to live basically as they used to live with their old Christian friends, doing the same things they always, with with their non-Christian friends, doing the same things that they always did and saying the same things that they always said and drinking the same things that they always drank. I don't think either of those two options, well, option one may sometimes be an acceptable option. I don't think really option two is ever an acceptable option. But I think we have a third option here as we look at verses 15 and 16 in Mark chapter 2. So let's look at verses 15 and 16. Look at verse 15 first. It says, And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners 
were reclining with Jesus and His disciples, for there were many who followed Him. So who's Jesus hanging out with here in verse 15? He's hanging out with, He's spending time with, not just, not just casually a part of the crowd, not like they just they showed up and they're a part of the crowd, but He's in the house. They're in the house with Him, reclining, sitting back at the table with Jesus, with tax collectors and sinners. He's demonstrating, he's eating a meal with them. That meant something more than it does in our day. Eating a meal with somebody in that day meant that you desired to have a relationship with these people. Jesus desired to have a relationship with this group that everybody else labeled tax collectors and sinners. And that's who Jesus is spending his time with. Levi, in following Jesus, didn't immediately leave his old friends, nor did he continue to just do what all his friends were normally doing. He left his tax booth. He turned away from his former life, but he got his old former friends and he said, you guys, you're bad too. Come with me, we're going to have a meal. There's a party at my house, but the guest of honor is no longer Bud Light, it is Jesus. Come to my house. And so his friends come and they gather and it says in verse 15 that many of these tax collectors and sinners followed Jesus. So we've got a bunch of tax collectors and sinners following. Now, what does it mean when it says sinners? Because aren't we all sinners? Right? You might ask that question. When it says tax collectors and sinners, aren't we all sinners? Yes, you're right. But the word was used at that time in a different way. It wasn't used to describe your average guy who occasionally broke the law. It was usually used to, about those who intentionally lived with total disregard for the law or didn't even know what the law was. It was criminals and those who were poor and uneducated. That's who was looked upon as sinners. Okay? So that's who's eating with Jesus now. These are people that we don't expect to show up in church on Sunday morning. That's who Jesus is with. They are people who are right now in between prison stays. Or people who got high last night and come to church this morning, or people who are still hungover this morning. We don't expect those people to come, or people who are 35 years old and can't read, or people who smell bad because they don't regularly brush their teeth or take a shower. We don't expect people like that, and we often aren't very welcoming when people like that are around. We kind of expect that people will look generally like us. But that's not the kind of people that Jesus was eating with here In verse 15, people who are hardened, alienated, needy. That's who Jesus is with. Verse 16, meet a new kind of people in verse 16. We've got two verses left here. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here's a second group. You've got one group tax collectors and sinners, they're in the house eating with Jesus. Pharisees outside the house, looking into the house, questioning Jesus. Okay? Two different groups. Pharisees showed up in the last passage that we went through. Remember when Jesus told the paralytic, rise, your sins have been forgiven? Remember that? And the the, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' authority, recognizing that He was claiming to be God. And they said, 
uh-uh, you can't say that. And now here they are again, doing the same thing, questioning Jesus. They're upset. And so, they ask, I don't know if they ask it to him, they ask it to his disciples, it says. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It seems so counterintuitive. The ones who seem to have no business being in the presence of Jesus, right? These dirty tax collectors and sinners, these sick people that are broken, they're the ones that are with Jesus. They're eating with him. Well, these other guys who have worked their whole lives to be really good, they've read their Bible, they have tried to obey. They know the law. They try to follow the law. Everybody would look at them and say they're really religious and really good. And they're the ones that aren't with Jesus. I want you to turn really quickly to Romans chapter 9. Because I want us to see this danger that we have, this tendency that we all have to be kind of like Pharisees. I want to read just a few verses out of Romans chapter 9, the last four verses, starting verse 30. Romans 9.30, here's what it says. Paul is going through this long discussion of Jews and Gentiles, and then he says this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, okay, that's these tax collectors and sinners, Gentiles, not Jewish people, maybe some of them are, but they weren't even pursuing righteousness. They weren't even trying to keep the law. It's not like they were trying to be good and show up at church at least on Easter. They weren't even doing that. They were just crazy criminal lawbreakers. Okay? It says the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Well, how did they get that? They weren't even trying. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's how we get it, by faith. But listen, verse 31, but that Israel, the Israelites, the Jewish people, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That was the problem that the Pharisees had. They thought because they had the law, and they sought really hard to follow it, they had righteousness. But that wasn't good enough. They didn't have faith, and that's all that's required. That's the only thing that's required. Following the law and being as obedient as they possibly could would not earn them favor with God. It was only through faith. They were deceived in thinking that it was somehow based on works. The law is meant to show us our sin so that we turn in faith to Christ. That's the danger that these people face. So here in this passage we see two groups of people. Okay, Two groups of people. One group... The Pharisees is depending on their own religious actions to earn them favor with God. They think they're healthy, and their response to Jesus is to question Him. That's one group. Second group, tax collectors and sinners, they recognize their sin and their total inability to do anything that's pleasing to God. And so they don't question Jesus. They come, assumingly humbly and repentant, before Jesus, and they eat with Him. They fellowship with Jesus. Two groups of people that we see in this passage. You know, when you want to go see the doctor, 
if you are sick, you can usually get in that day or the next day, can't you? Like if you, you've got something, you call the doctor, they've got appointments open. But if you just want to schedule like your well-child checkup or your annual physical exam or whatever, you've got to work like four or five months out. Why is that? Because doctors keep their schedule open for sick people. Because if there isn't sick people, there's not much of a need for doctors. The danger for us who have been in the church for a long time Church people, talking to you, the danger for us is that we tend to be a bit more Pharisee-like. That we see sinners as people out there. And we shake our heads at all the sin that's going on in our world out there. But we need to be careful to be sure that we're not the people standing outside the window saying, oh, look at that, look at those those dirty, sinful people, but that we recognize, you know what? We're the people inside. We're the dirty, sinful people who have found that our only hope is in Jesus. And so we are sitting and eating with Him and willing to associate with any other sick and sinful person who knows they're desperately in need of Jesus. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, I love Jesus' answer, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's common sense, right? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we look at those two groups, like I said, our tendency can be to be self-righteous, judgment-passing religious people. And we forget to look at ourselves as sick sinners desperately in need of God's grace. The Pharisees, they believe they're righteous. They're doing it all right. They're following all the rules. So they're not interested in following the doctor. They just got questions for them. The tax collectors and sinners, they know they're sinners. And they're eternally grateful that the doctor came to call on them. So which one are we? I mean, you don't usually wake up and say, Man, I'm feeling good today. I want to go see the doctor. If you think spiritually that you are clean and you've got, like, you are seven notches above everybody else and you're doing really well, then you're in a pretty dangerous spot. But if you're sick, then you know you need to go to the doctor. I've had this sinus thing going on for like a week. I'm thinking I might go to the doctor tomorrow. If it was day one, I probably wouldn't think about it, but it's been hanging on. And so I'm kind of thinking I might need to go to the doctor. But most of us hesitate. I, I read this, uh, saw this story on NBC News. I uh, just read it on the internet. And there's a doctor, and here's what the doctor said, a quote from a doctor, okay? American men, he's speaking specifically of men in the United States, American men simply refuse to go to the doctor, ever, either out of male pride, out of white coat fear, or simply out of lifestyle habit. Many adult men go to the doctor for the first time in their 40s on a stretcher with a heart attack. Okay, that's what a doctor said. Just talking about the fact that guys need to be going to the doctor more often in our country. Now, I'm going to replace, read that same quote and replace the word doctor with Jesus and the word coat with robe in there. Okay, ready? Here we go. American men simply refuse to go to Jesus ever, either out of male pride, out of white robe fear, 
or simply out of lifestyle habit. And many adult men will go to see Jesus for the first time in their 40s on a stretcher with a heart attack. Church, as long as we, whether out of pride or fear or contentment with our current way of living, as long as we fool ourselves into thinking that sin is the problem of other people out there somehow, and sin is not a problem of us in here, in our church, in our hearts, as long as we forget that, we will not repent of our sin and turn and follow Jesus. Sin is a problem out there. And sin's a problem in here too. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul really levels the playing field when he quotes actually from the Old Testament where it says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Okay? So like you think you're doing pretty good? That's kind of where we all start. The playing field is pretty level. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God, no one understands. You know, I was convicted, especially this week, um, you know, one of the hot topics, especially in more conservative Christian churches that believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, is the hot topic culturally right now is the fight that's going on over how to define marriage. Okay? And I, was, and, and, and I think that's something we should rightfully be engaged in as a church, in those discussions. But this week, it kind of was brought to my attention. I, I, I will admit, I'm alarmed with you at how quickly our culture seems to be shifting its mind on that topic. That just a couple generations ago, something that was, something that was um, not seen as good in any way is now seen as totally good and totally acceptable by the majority of people, almost. I believe strongly that marriage should be upheld as a union between a man and a woman. I know that that's true because it... it states it pretty clearly in the Bible. We live in a state, though, that disagrees with me and probably many of you on that, and in a country that's rapidly changing its mind. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take a quick step back, because we can get so engaged in this culture war kind of stuff, where we look at this one issue and, and look at all the sin that's going on out there, right? I mean, it's those people, at, and we're just, we're upset and, and we're losing the battle, and, you know, and all, this, all this rhetoric that goes around this. And, and, and okay, fine. But I want to stop and look at this. The danger, as I see how that applies to this passage, and I was convicted of this week, is that we see other sick people, and we think we're okay. We see people involved in homosexual sin, and we feel like we have it together because our sin is just heterosexual sin. Homosexual sinners need to recognize that they're sick and they need the doctor. And heterosexual sinners need to realize that we're sick. We need the doctor. I'm going to read a quote to you from Al Mohler. It'll be on there so you can kind of follow along that way as well. Al Mohler says this, They are sexual sinners and so are we. It puts us in our comfort zone to say, There are people out there struggling with sexual sin. Yes, he says. They're called human beings after puberty. We need to say that every one of us is a jumble of sexual brokenness left to ourselves. There is no one on the other side of puberty who has had imagination and who has had nothing but a God-honoring sexual orientation in terms of thought, word, and deed, and imagination, and all the rest. This, the church, is the place where it's actually safe to talk about this 
Because the question is not, are you misdirected sexually, but in what way are you misdirected sexually? You are in the company of people who by the power of the gospel are redeemed and by the power of the Holy Spirit are being conformed to the image of Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, this is what Christ died for and this is what the church can handle. Some good words. We're, you know what we are, church? We're a hospital. You know, hospitals don't do very well if they turn away sick people. And so we as a church need to recognize that we are sick people and we have come and we have found our hope, our redemption, our righteousness is not in ourselves, but it's only in Jesus. So sin is not just a problem out there, sin is a problem in here. And so we all come together in this hospital called the church to the good doctor. When we see sin as a church, now be clear about this, when we see sin as a church, we do not accept it as good. We do not call that which is evil good. We do not call that which is sin okay and acceptable. It's not. We don't do that. But when we see sin, we acknowledge that while that person who is sinning deserves condemnation for their sin, so do I. And that that my hope, just as much as their hope, is only in the finished work of Christ. That He died to forgive us of our sin. And He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives, to battle against and put to death our sinful sexual thoughts and desires as we trust that sexual fulfillment was created by the Creator to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage relationship. That is the way He designed it. But anything outside of that, in anything, okay, anything outside of that, whether it's homosexual lust or heterosexual lust, or premarital sex, or pornography, or adultery, all of those things fall short of God's good plan and our sin. We need to recognize that and acknowledge that. We see sin in ourselves, we repent and trust in Jesus. We see how sick we are, we go running to the doctor who came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We see others who are sick, we don't call, with, we don't call them names, we share with them the name of the doctor that they might turn to him and be healed. So we ought to be about. So the question as we close this morning is, if you've been to the doctor, are you thinking that you're doing okay? Because I think a lot of us can look, you know, some of you maybe when you're sick, you look and you have some symptoms that you think maybe aren't really a big deal. And we can do that with our sin. That we can look at our sin and say, oh, you know what? It's just a little bit of greed. I'm sure I'll get over it. Right? Just a little greed. I'm sure I'll get over that. Or there's just a little bit of bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart, but I can just avoid her and it'll be fine. Right? Or, or I'm really trying hard to, to stop letting my eyes gaze on that. It's probably just a phase of something that's going around and I'm sure I'll get over it, take some over-the-counter stuff and we'll be fine in a little bit. Or will you humble yourself Take your own sin seriously and recognize today you desperately need the doctor. A couple things we need to know. One, you're not too sick for him. Some of you might be thinking that. Like, oh, there's no treatment left for me. 
I am, I am too far gone. Not true. Jesus is a good doctor, and good doctors don't turn away sick people. Some of you just need to be reminded that your sickness is a lot more serious than you think it is. You might look at it, and maybe you normally look at it compared to other people, and you think you're doing all right. But maybe the Holy Spirit this morning has convicted you that what you thought was maybe just a little rash is actually a symptom of a disease that you have that will eventually lead to death if not dealt with. Some of you have been to the doctor before. I know a lot of us have. We have recognized our sin and we have come to the doctor and we've received the cure. But the symptoms persist. You know that? Christian, you know that, right? That we've received the cure, but the symptoms persist until death. And so we need to keep going to follow-up appointments. Continue to, to go before Jesus and recognize, Jesus, I am so sinful. Thank you for the power that you have to make me. Thank you for making me a saint when I was not a saint. I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. But you made me one through Christ. So have you seen the doctor lately? Maybe it's time to make an appointment. He has his schedule cleared for sick people. You don't have to put it off till tomorrow. You can come today, right now. What I want to do, just kind of as we close, um, is we're going to, I just want to spend some time where we just pray. So I think it's so easy to just hear stuff and just kind of let it go, but I want us to pray. I want us to think about our own sin. It's good to do before we take communion together. And we're not going to do that right away. We're not going to take communion right away. We're going to take some time to just confess our sin to God and admit that you're sick. Maybe you do that like as you just sit in your seat. Maybe some of you just like, you've just been, you've been kind of like pushing it off for a long time, not willing to admit how sick you really are. And maybe you need to come and just, you want to just pray up front, like do something bold. You can come and you can just kneel on these steps and pray if you want. You want to pray with me? I'm going to sit in the front row right up there. And you want to just pray with me about something? You want me to pray for you about something? Come and sit by me in the front row and I'll pray with you. Uh, and the worship team is going to come up and, um, and they're just going to play a little bit of music. And then after a time of just us being alone with Jesus, um, whether you're, you're up here or in your seat or sitting next to me praying, then we're going to sing a song together before we have a time of communion around, around the table together. But if... If you want to pray again with me, come and sit in the front row. You want to pray up here. Just confess your sin before God. Feel free to do that. You want to do it in your seat. Feel free to do that. But let's just take some time to examine ourselves this morning and acknowledge before God, confess before God the seriousness of our sin and our sickness and our desperate need for Him.